Well, turn with me to 1 John. In your pew Bibles, I believe it's page 1022. I'll read the passage that we're going to be looking at today, but first I'll pray and join me. We are thankful, Father, that you have given us a book, you've given us words, you've spoken to us in a way that we can understand. We ask, Lord, that you continue to give us a heart that desires to understand, that you transform by the renewing of our hearts and our minds, that these are the words, as we have sung this morning with the children, that these are words that you have breathed out to us. And as Moses has said, these are not just idle words, these are the words of our life. The life that we have in you, Jesus, I pray that we understand the difference between life without you and life with you. So Lord, as we understand these words today, as we read them and as we hear them, we are thankful for the heart that you've allowed us to see and the hands that have worked for us through your Son, Jesus, that through his obedience and his death, he has given us eternal life and assurance of our salvation by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So we pray that, dear Father, you would continue to do all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Verse 18 of chapter 2 to verse 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard the, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are, that, they, that all are not with, of, of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that, that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So it's been a few weeks since we've looked at this, uh, this letter, and just to kind of give you a, 
real quick overview again that uh, the Apostle John, the very elder Apostle John, is writing a pastoral letter to churches that he is very concerned about. He's concerned because there, there are false teachers, there are deceivers, there are false prophets that are, have worked their way into the church, and now there is a distress going on within the church because these people have left. And John wants to reassure them of what they do know because he wants to confirm to them, do you remember what you believe in? And that's where he says so many times, you know and we know. And he says it multiple times throughout the book because he wants them to be reminded of the foundation of their faith. In this midst of turmoil, in the midst of conflict, in the, this midst of this schism that has taken place. And John writes, especially in chapter 5, he writes that, uh, I write these things in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And we know, in verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The reason why he's writing this is because he wants them to have this assurance. And so John is giving them a grid. He's giving them these tests, as you have heard me talk about, and others have adopted this kind of overview of this book. And the way to look at it, or with the lenses that John gives these three examinations. Now today we are being, we're going to be asking you and ourselves to examine yourselves before you eat and drink. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, before you partake in the Lord's Supper in this communion feast, he says, examine yourselves. Understand what this all means. Understand what these elements are all about. Who do they represent? Are they pointing at you or are they pointing to someone else? And that's what we believe sacraments are. They are this sign pointing to the glory and the grace and the mercy of God. And it's then for us, as John wants them to understand, it then seals in our hearts, it then proves God's love in a confirming way through these signs. It happens in baptism, it happens in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So John is writing these things and he writes these tests. And so we've looked at all three of them kind of out of sequence, because my very first uh, message to you was uh, the ones that we're, we're going to kind of review the next time I preach, which will be a few months down the road, is uh, chapter 2, verse 28 through verse 10 of chapter 3. And that test was the test of obedience, the test of righteousness. Are we obedient to the laws of God? Do we care what God says? Does God care how we live? And do we care what God thinks about our lives? Do we reflect the gratitude of the mercy that God has given us in his son Jesus? And because we reflect that glory, and because we are being transformed into the image and the likeness of his son, the Bible tells us, do we do that intentionally? Are we committed to that? Does the world see it? Does our, the church see it? Does, is it evident? Is it a sign of the gratitude and the transforming love that God has given to us? And then the next test is the test of love, which we saw uh, last time. Even though the, the test of righteousness, the test of obedience, is certainly seen in chapter 2, the first six verses there. Then we looked last time at uh, this 
test of love. He says, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment. And he talks about the love of God. He talks about the love that God has given to us. He, he is the, the writer here. John is the writer of the Gospel of John. And he talks about how, how he wrote in the Gospel that see how the world will know that we are Christians. The world will know how we love God by the way that we love one another. This love of the fellowship that we have the love that we have for God is reflected in the community of faith. And so we see here that the love that God loves is the love, he says here, at the same time in verse 8, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. It's new because it's now given to us in Christ. It's not a law that we obey. Yes, we care that God wants us to love, but now it's been reflected in the very nature and character and life of Jesus and the person of Christ. And we remember as the, as the, uh, the words that uh, John writes to us, now Jesus showed his disciples the full extent of his love by giving his life for them, by loving them, in spite of knowing their hearts, in spite of knowing the, the times when they will and we will disobey when we will not reflect that jesus still loves us because he doesn't love us depending upon our obedience he just loves us and gives his life for us and then he says this whoever in verse 9 whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness it's incongruent it just doesn't work it just does not fit you can't say that you love God and don't love the church, don't love the community of faith, don't love other believers. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light of God, and abides in the light of Christ, abides in the light of the gospel. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. If we live our lives according to the scriptures, then we will not cause anybody to stumble. It's when we have a memory loss. It's when we functionally forget who we are, and we functionally forget who God is, and we have amnesia, forgetting who we say we are and what God has made us now into, his children, followers of Christ, a brother. Jesus is now our brother. We are now part of the family of God. That won't cause anybody to stumble who is in the faith. Now, you and I know that others outside of the faith, we're a bunch of wacky people who live according to a whole different song, a whole different worldview. The things that God calls wrong, the things that God calls sin, we desire to call them sin. Even though, for some people, we look at this and saying, what's really wrong with it? God says it's wrong. We cannot say, que sera, sera. We can't say, live and let live. We just cannot say that. It's not hurting me. It's not hurting you. Who cares what they do? For the Christian, we care what God says it is. And so he says, there is a love that God hates. And that's what he talks about in verses 15, 16, and 17. Do not love the world. That's the kind of love that God does not want us to have because we cannot love God and love the world at the same time. As you've heard, you can't love mammon, you can't love money, you can't love the things of the world and still love God. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions which we all struggle with, even as believers, we still struggle with it. But yet we know that it is not from the Father, and so we hopefully repel from it, or work against it, or try to say no to ungodliness. It is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he says, the reason why you don't want to love the world, because this world is passing away. Along with its desires, even though it feels good now, even though it is motivating now, even though it just fuels our jets in life now, even though it motivates us now, it brings us joy, it brings us happiness, it scintillates us, it just gives us such great feeling. And yet we understand that all of that is passing away. We understand the deceptiveness and deceitfulness of sin. We understand, as Paul writes, it is like that fish hook that has a worm on it. And we're beguiling that fish. And we want that fish to bite knowing that he wants that worm. But boy, we understand that there's not only this hook, but there's that hook. And we understand that when we nab that fish, there's a very good opportunity that we're going to nab it, and it's going to be stuck. And so that's what the world's love does to us. It beguiles us. It, it just taunts us. It tempts us. And if we don't have any desire to please God and to say no, then that's where John is saying, then you really don't know who the Father is. You really don't know who Jesus is. You really don't know what grace is. You really don't know what mercy is. If you do not have a desire to be obedient to the law and the gospel, then you don't know these things. And there are people, and these false teachers, are saying something that is distressing this church, or these believers. And John, in his great pastoral care, that's one thing that I hope people understand, as there's going to be a membership class, or in trying to, an inquiry class about Hope Church, and who we are, and what we, what we believe in, and how, how this place runs, and what is a Presbyterian church, and what are all the bells and whistles here? And what do we expect? And what can you expect from us? It is, it is there where we come to understand this desire to be obedient, this test that God desires from us. These people have come into the church, and, and John is... is is really wanting them to understand how important it is to be a member of the church of God, to be a member of a community of faith that is obedient and love God, loves God this much. John is concerned as a pastor. Being a part of a church that loves you, that has a leadership that cares for you, a shepherding group of men who want you to grow, in your love for Christ, who want to protect you. Outside of here, what, what barriers do you have? If you're deceived by the world already, what other guards do you have up? If your strength is your understanding of the Bible, you and I know that sometimes we are practical atheists. Are we not? And in this place, in this church, in this group of people that God has brought together and have covenanted with one another, in here is safety. In here is shepherds, or our shepherds, to be grammatically correct. Our shepherds. Here are people who care. And this is what John reflects and Paul reflects, that we're here to protect the sheep that God has given to us. We are not the shepherd, but we are the under-shepherds that God has placed 
to feed and to water and to protect the sheep that he has died for. And this is what John's heart is all about. And John is worried and concerned that these people are going to be led astray. So he's holding out there things that they have been taught through the scriptures, through the Old Testament, and through the revelation through Jesus Christ and through the word of God that they have, that the letters of Paul and Peter and those letters that have gone on through and read to the churches are the very words of God, and this is how God now reveals himself to us on the other side of the cross with the grace of God, the Lamb of God, redemption now secured, not wringing our hands, waiting for God to save us, but that he has completely and fully redeemed us. So there are people, these Gnostics or these, this kind of theology, this kind of philosophy that is telling them that only a few of the chosen ones, the ones who are in the know, because the word gnosis means knowledge, and for the, words, for the ones who are in the know, the enlightened ones, those are the ones that are right with God. It's not given to everyone, only us special people. And, and there's no way that God can, do, can come to earth in the form of a person, because heavens, everybody knows that material things are evil. Material things are wicked. So why would God want to put on this if we can't wait to get away from this? And so the Gnostics, or these precursors of the Gnostics, have come into the church and have told them, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. It doesn't matter how you live your life. You don't need to be obedient. It's all about up here. It's all about the mind. It's all about the, the thoughts of the mind. It's all about spirituality. It has nothing to do with the pedestrian walk that we have. And so John is very concerned, saying, oh, yes, it does. Here's a test. If you don't love, if you don't obey, then how can you call yourselves followers? You know what Jesus said. You know what you've been taught. So this test now that we have is the doctrinal test, the test of truth. And this is where the very, the very core of where these people are coming from, the very essence of their teaching. If you don't care about what this earth is about, if it is all just, we, we just, we're in bondage here, we don't care how we live our lives, it doesn't matter how free we are with our bodies, with our minds, with our stomachs, with anything. What we eat, what we drink, what we do, what we say, how we live, doesn't make a difference because this is not meaningful. It's all meaningful up here. John says the very core of the problem is their understanding of who God is. It's their philosophy. It's their theology. It's their truth. Because you've heard me say this, those who've been here, is that orthodoxy, right thinking, right teaching, leads to orthopraxy, right living, or good living. Living that God is pleased with. And that's where John is coming from. He has worked his way down from love, from obedience, and now he says, here's the core. It really comes down what you believe in. Because what you believe in is how you're going to live. And so he wants to assure them. He wants to give them assurance. So let's take a look at these, the sections of this passage. And remember, too, that something I spoke of uh, the first time I, I gave this, the very first message, was that all of this, this, this battle between, uh, that we see that the world is trying to Undo everything God has given to us in Christ. The enemy is trying to do undo everything. As John says in the beginning of his prologue of his gospel, he says the darkness has tried to overcome it, but it has not. Now that was, in, that was talking about the life of Christ, but this is the ongoing 
living of Christ within his church until he comes again. The darkness is trying to snuff out the light of Christ. The world is trying to snuff out the life of Christ. It's trying to overcome it. Why? Because we went back all the way and looked at the book of Genesis, and it says there's going to be a battle between what? The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. And the serpent is going to do everything he can, the evil one, the Satan, is going to do everything he can to destroy the people of God, to foil the plans of God. He did that in Genesis 3 at the very beginning. He lied. He deceived. And we saw how the first man and woman were deceived when they failed. They forgot. They had amnesia. They forgot what God had given them. They forgot what God had said to them. The rest of this book, as one of my professors said, is all a footnote. Meaning that from Genesis 3 on, it's all a footnote of how the, sea, the uh, offspring of the serpent is going to do everything he can to attack and destroy the offspring of that woman. And we see that offspring ultimately is Jesus. And we are the offspring of Christ. We are the offspring of God in Christ. We are now the children of God. Born not of the flesh, born not of the will of the Father, but born of God, as John writes to us in his prologue. So we see in verses 18 through 21, John says this. He wants them to be assured, and he says children. Notice he uses these very family terms, these very endearing terms. He calls them children, little children. He calls them uh, those, uh, my, my beloved. He said, children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So he is telling them, do not be surprised by what you're experiencing here. Because it's all footnote from the book of Genesis. And as we have seen, and if you read the book of the, of the Old Testament books, we see that there's going to come a day. In these last days, there are going to be deceivers and prophets and false people and false teachers. And in those last days, he says, Paul, uh, the, uh, Luke tells us, in the book of Acts chapter 2, that it says there, in those last days, the Spirit of God will be poured out. And so he is saying that we are in these last days. We are in the last days ever since Christ was raised from the dead. We are in the end times. We are in the last days because he says we're in that last time because the Holy Spirit has come to us like prophesied in Joel and like Jesus has said in Matthew 24, in those last days, in, there's going to come a time when there's going to be false prophets and false teachers and they're going to try to deceive you. And he says, let, let me remember that I told you this. And this is where John is telling him, this is, remember what Jesus said. Remember what I wrote. Remember what the Gospels were written. Remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Remember what they said. This is the last hour. These are the last days. This is when this battle is going to be ensuing. And it's going to be ensuing this tribulation against the church until Jesus returns. And so he says to them, this is what we're in. We're in the last hour because why? He says this. He says that you've heard Antichrist is coming. Now, if you want to know everything you want to know about the Antichrist, the word Antichrist is only used in, the, in this epistle and the writings of John. If you look here, it says, we read it, it says in uh, verse 18, the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. We see in chapter 4, verse 3 of this, of this letter that he says, Every spirit does not confess Jesus Christ is not from God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist. And then we turn to 2 John, the, the next letter 
And there's only 13 verses, so you can't get lost. In verse 7, For many deceivers has gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Now John is the only one that ever uses the term Antichrist. But it's not new, because he says here, in chapter 2, This is the last hour which you have heard. It's been taught in the book of Daniel. In other places in the Bible, we see that there is going to be this uprising of the worldly powers, of this man of lawlessness that, John, that uh, Paul writes to us in 2 Thessalonians. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians real quickly. I'm not going to go into great detail about the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness. But he says here, now, concern, verse chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians, thank you. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They were told that the judgment had come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So there was a sense of understanding that there was this uprising of this man of lawlessness or this antichrist. But John is telling them, don't worry. Don't do what other people have done. I mean, there's been an explosion and creativity about who the antichrist is. You know, I went to a church a fundies church, and you understand what the word fundies means, right? Not, not a fundamentalist church, but a church that is really extremely fundy, meaning that it is so extremely literal that in the, in the front of the church, they had a picture of Gorbachev as the Antichrist. A picture of Gorbachev as the Antichrist. You can see there's been all kinds of Henry Kissinger has been called the Antichrist. There's just been so many creative thoughts that Paul, that Paul and John is saying to them, you're, get, you're not getting the point. Don't try to figure this out. And that's why the Bible's vague, because he doesn't want us to try to figure it out. God doesn't want us to spend our time on figuring out who the Antichrist is, because he says here, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Wait a minute now. So now, because this is the last hour, and the last hour and the last days is when what Jesus says, those false teachers and those false prophets are going to come in to the church. And remember what Paul said in the book of Acts, said in the church are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing? He is reminding them this, don't be surprised by this. But be on your guard. Realize that the guy, the son of lawlessness or the Antichrist, is not come yet. He's coming. But what you need to worry about are the Antichrists that are here right now. That's what you need to be bothered by. And he says here, because there are many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So he gives them an understanding, an eschatological or a last time or last things perspective about life, about faith, about history. And he tells them that these teachers, that these people who were in the church have now left. They left because they moved on. And he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. Because they were not followers of Christ. And there's the very core of this, he says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued. They would have stayed with us. 
They would have stayed with the sound teaching. They would have stayed with the sound words, as Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, the sound doctrines, the sound words, the sound truth. Watch Watch your doctrine, Timothy, because by it you're going to save yourself and your listeners. Doctrine is important. Many people say, People who don't know doctrine say doctrine divides. No, folks, we all have doctrine. We are all theologians. Some of us stink at it better than others. But everybody, they have a theology. When I point out there, unbelievers, the world has a theology. Everybody's a theologian. There are no atheists in foxholes, as you've heard say. And so he says this, he goes, they were not of us. If they were, they would have continued. Why? Because Paul writes to us that he who began a good work in us will see it to the very end. And John, and Paul, and John writes to us about Jesus. He says, I have given my life for them. Everyone the Father has given me is secure. No one can snatch them out of my hand. They would have never walked away. Now this doesn't mean that this is talking about people moving a church to another church. This is talking about leaving the church, leaving the faith. But they went out that they might become plain. They did them a favor. They gave a sign. They put a billboard out and saying, we are not followers of Christ, the Christ that you teach. We aren't following those words. We aren't following that kind of doctrine. We think you're wrong. So we're going to go away from you. And if you listen to what you've been listening to, you guys are stupid. He says, but they went out that they might become, it might become plain to us that they're all not from us. So we know, folks, that as we hear from the parable of Jesus and the, the wheat and the tares, that among the, within the church there are people who are truly wheat and there are people who are not truly wheat and they're weeds. And they look very much like the weeds. And the problem with the church is sometimes the believers look like weeds as well. So you can't tell the difference and that's why Jesus says don't start pulling out because you may be pulling out good wheat. You may be pulling out wheat. So let the judgment do that. Let, us, let me do that when the judgment comes. We aren't there, and that means that we aren't there to say and condemn people because we don't know where their heart is. But we can see by their actions and by their testimony if they love Jesus or not. And if they don't love Jesus, if they can't confess that Jesus is Lord, if they can't confess that Jesus is the Son of God, if they don't care by their lifestyle how they live, then they have no place in this community at all. This is why, this is why I brought up the uh, membership class notebook. And listen to the questions that are asked of everybody who becomes a member of this church, of the PCA, Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, safe, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he has offered in the gospel? You see, those first two questions are all about doctrine. They're all about doctrine. Within the incorporation of the standards of the PCA or the Presbyterian Church of America and by this church, doctrine means everything. Do you know who you are? Do you know who God is? Can you articulate? Can you tell us why you love Jesus? Can you tell us why you don't deserve Jesus, Jesus, but you love him? Why do you want to be at a place that proclaims that Jesus is the only way for people to have eternal life? Isn't that narrow-minded? And then the next question is this. Do you resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live obedience? 
live as becomes the followers of Christ? Do you promise to support the church in worship? Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to promote its purity and peace? You see, these are the very examinations that John has given to us in his letter. John just pulled all these things together that is in the Bible and just saying, this is the grid work that you should examine yourselves with, and I should examine myself with, and we should examine each other this way, in a loving way, if you proclaim who Christ is. But then it says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is challenging the Corinthian church, and he says there, examine yourselves. You're not acting as if you are believers, even though he calls them saints in the beginning of this letter. He understands that there are people in that midst that are not. And yet some of them have left and these others are just concerned of what's going on in the church. He says to them, examine yourselves and to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. And this is what John is going out there and saying. These people left. Yes, feel badly, but realize, feel badly that they're destined for hell. Feel badly that they don't know who Jesus is, and they're following a theology, a philosophy that is doomed. Because these people in this church had to say no to every one of those questions. And that's why John is saying this. He says, but you, in verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy One, which is God. Now, the, the thing is, is with these Gnostics, they believed that they were anointed. They believed that they were enlightened. This anointing didn't go to everybody, to only a few that really get it. A real elite group of people. And John turns it around and says, oh no, they're not anointed, but you have been anointed. And the word is not, some people mistakenly say this, it's not charisma, the word here. It's charisma, which is taken from the word of Christos, which is Christ. These people are antichrists, and he is saying that you are little chrismas. You are little Christs. Listen to uh, the uh, Heldeberg Catechism. He said, it says this in, in, in uh, question 31. Why is Jesus called Christ? And what is the meaning of anointed? Because he had been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and the will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father, the eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. When the spirit of God came down upon Jesus at his baptism, that's when he was anointed. It wasn't that he wasn't the Christ, but it was to be seen that he was this son of God who was going to be prophet, priest, and king. That's what the anointing is. That's what Christ is called Christ. You know, again, jokingly, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ, who is the Hebrew Messiah, who is in Greek, the anointed one, to be prophet, priest, and king, the son of God, fully God and fully man. Notice what it says in question 32, but why are we called a Christian? Because by faith, I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing, 
I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. And the commentary on that last question is this. He says, as little Christs, now we're not Christ, but we're little Christs, ordained by the same Father and anointed by the same Spirit, we are to fulfill in a lesser way the same offices of Christ. That meaning prophet, priest, and king. We confess his name like good prophets. We present ourselves as living sacrifices like good priests and fight our mutual enemies and reign in joint dominion like good kings. That's what John is writing to these people, and he says, that's who you are. They may think they're anointed, but this is the anointing that you have. He wants to give them comfort. He wants to give them assurance. He doesn't want them to get scared over what this conflict is all about. I write to you, in verse 21, I write to you not because you don't know. Here's this great, these are the knowing ones, the Gnostics. They're supposed to know all this stuff. He says, they know nothing. You know the truth. You see how he's playing with these words. He's using their words against them to encourage these saints. He says, because you know the truth, and there is no lie in the truth. And now he defines what this, what this lie is. Verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar? John is very blunt. Darkness, light. Truth, liar. He's used these contrasts very much. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist. Whoever denies that the Father and his, whoever denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Remember the Gospel of John. Can't take you there, but chapter 10. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know me, you know the Father. You can't separate us. In these last days, God has been totally revealed to us in his son, Jesus. The, the, the first sentences of the book of Hebrews. You cannot say that you, Jesus is not the Son of God. You cannot say that. You cannot say that Jesus is not fully God and fully man and know the Father. You deny Jesus, you have no relationship with the Father. You have no relationship with God. You may interpret God as you want to. It may be true for you, but not true for me. You've heard that. But John is putting it right out there. He says, there is no there is no conversation to be had. It's black and white. It's one or the other. You are either for him or against him. And this is where John is saying, rest. Be assured that you are in Christ. Be assured the love of the Father because you know the truth. And this is what he says, verse 24. This is how now, verse 23, 22 and 23, is the definition of the heresy, the definition of a lie. But at the very core, you know how we exercise and people who are exercisers and trainers go, how's your core? At the very core of who we are and our spiritual health is this, that we cannot deny that Jesus is God. We cannot, define, we cannot deny that the Father and Jesus are one. That's why the Trinity is so key to our faith. Because if we deny it, there is no hope for us. And then he says in verse 24 to 27, the antidote, the antidote, how can we safeguard ourselves from falling into this deception? Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. 
And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, again he brings this up, that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. From that verse means that Nate and I, have no, we don't have a job anymore. Some people have said that. People have read that to me and saying, I don't need you. I don't need a pastor. Why do I need a church? It says me right here, I don't, need, I don't need anybody to teach me anything. And it's not what he's saying. He is saying, you do not need anyone to teach you the beginnings of the faith. We No one to teach you about who the Antichrist is. You don't need to know about it because I've told you everything that there is. I've told you. You already know the truth. That's why no one, you don't need anybody to teach you. Remember, these people are trying to teach them something cool, something esoteric, something that's out of this world, something that really gets down to the deep things of spirituality. The things that these people don't teach, let us take you to someplace that you've never been before. How enticing is that? But you hear that crock from so many people. He says this, but as the very last verse, as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I want to just leave you with this sense that what John is saying is that this is critical. This is critical for us to hold on to sound doctrine, to belong to a church that teaches the truth that gives you an understanding of what the book of Genesis means and how that takes you all the way to the book of Revelation and you see how creation, how redemption, how the fall, the redemption, and the consummation are all in the plan of God and how God has progressively revealed himself to us through the ages and then ultimately in Christ. And that God can't love you anymore. I'm going to put this on my gravestone. God can't love you anymore than he already loves you now. Why? Because of who Jesus is. Not because of a stinking thing that you and I have done and can do can make God any happier than he is right now in us because he loves Jesus. Amen? But listen to what's the world we live in. Who is Jesus? Jesus is not one true God. He is not a savior, but a spiritual model, a guru, and is now an ascended master. He was a new ager who tapped into the divine power and in the same way that anyone can. Many believe he went east to India and Tibet and learned mystical truths. And he did not rise physically, but rose into a higher spiritual realm. Man, doesn't that sound cool? Or here, that's, that's the new age. Or here we think of Buddhism. Jesus is not part of their belief. Well, that solves that one really quickly, doesn't it? Transcendental meditation. Jesus is not uniquely God like all persons. Jesus has a divine essence. Unlike most, he discovered it. Christ didn't suffer and couldn't suffer for people's sins. Hinduism. Jesus is a teacher, a guru, an avatar. He is the son of God as others are. His death does not atone for sins, and he did not rise from the dead. Baha'i faith. Jesus is one of many manifestations of God. Each manifestation supersedes the previous, giving new teachings about God. Jesus, who superseded Moses, was superseded by Muhammad, and most recently by the great Baha'u'llah, the glory of Allah. Jesus is not God and did not rise from the dead. He is not, only way, he's not the only way to God. Jesus has returned to the earth in the form of Baha'u'llah. Now these are these Christian cults. Here's Mormonism. 
Jesus is a separate God, small g, from the Father. He was created as a spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven, and he is the elder brother of all men and spiritual beings. His body was created through union between Elohim and Mary. Jesus was married. His death on the cross does not provide full atonement for sins. Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus is not God. Before he lived on earth, he was Michael the archangel. Jehovah made the universe through him. On earth, he was a man who lived a perfect life. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit. His body was destroyed. Jesus is not coming again. He's he has returned invisibly in 1914 in spirit. Unification Church, Jesus was a perfect man, not a God. He is the son of Zechariah, not born of a virgin. His mission was to unite the Jews behind him, find a perfect bride, and begin a perfect family. And the mission failed. Christian scientists. Jesus is not the Christ, but a man who displayed the Christ idea. Jesus was not God, and God can never become a man or flesh. He did not suffer and could not suffer for sins. He did not die on the cross. He was not resurrected physically. He will not literally come back. There's a few more there. This is the spirit of Antichrist, and we live in it. We don't need to wait for the Antichrist to come. We have the spirit of Antichrist all around us. And there are churches, and there are Christian sects that are in bookstores, and Christian bookstores, and there are people who are on Christian networks who are saying abominable things about Jesus. And we need to be discerning, folks. We need to be on our guard. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to understand what the Word means so that we cannot give credence. It's not to say that we get like John and call the fire from heaven. We don't get a flamethrower and start wiping people out. But we become astute. We give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We go back to the very basics and we understand who Jesus is is and let the world know when the opportunity comes who they are but realize it ain't don't worry about the man of lawlessness don't worry about the antichrist know that it's going to happen be ready for it how do you do that as john right as as we are read by peter and and paul he's just saying it's like homeland security just dig right in and do what god wants you to do be ready in season out of season be ready understanding that the times are going to be tough, that there's going to be suffering, that there's going to be escalation. Before we know it, folks, we already feel it. What it's going to be like to be a Christian living in America. We're going in such a diverse broad of perspectives that we don't fit anywhere, in any party. We need to be faithful to the word of God and just be the church and love one another and rejoice in the glory of God. Rejoice in the word of God. Rejoice in the sacraments that God has given to us. Be faithful with our love. Be faithful with our obedience and understand that Jesus is God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us as we are called to be faithful in this world, surrounded by heretics, surrounded by ignorant people who are espousing lies, who, Father, as your word tells us, that Satan is the father of lies. And we are in a spiritual battle, so we take upon ourselves the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of faith. We take upon ourselves the, the, the sandals of peace, we take upon us, Lord, as we do these things that, Father, we, we undergird ourselves with your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us the assurance in our hearts as we are, are now partaking of this sacrament that in our hearts we examine ourselves and we truly know there may be differences, yes, among us, Lord, in some secondary issues here in this church and with other believers. But at the very core of our being, at the very core of our faith, we believe that you, Jesus, are very God and very man. And that, Jesus, without you being both, we do not have salvation as we profess or think that we have. And so, Father, I pray that you give us 
a heart that rejoices in the scriptures that we have, in this hope that you've given to us, this living hope, this glorious hope, this eternal hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For when we need it, Lord, when we find ourselves in distress, as we've read, as we read many times, as Pastor has said to us today, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And Lord, that can only happen because we understand who you are, Father, and who you are, the Son, and who you are, the Holy Spirit. And we, we thank you for the plan of God the Father. We thank you, Jesus, for redeeming us and implementing that plan and we thank you, Holy Spirit, for making it, applying it to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would again give us a rejoicing heart based upon truth. And that we would find again your peace that transcends all understanding. As we live a life together at Hope Church to glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.